0: Every single time I guide us in front of you, you give me a numerical score. How's that for feedback?
1: Welcome to Clock or Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we're going to talk about predicting player outcomes. But first, I think James has an update from his Duke scene.
0: Yeah, so the reason we're talking about this is over Thanksgiving, almost all of the Duke Freestylers go home to visit their families. But Will Ho stayed behind, and so we had a few days to jam by ourselves, which is pretty rare because usually there's at least one or two freshman players in the jam. So it's not often that we kind of have the advanced jam with the better players. So Will actually came over to the spin factory on Thanksgiving Day and we had a really great jam. We filmed the jam, and then we edited the video together. And I sent you, I thought, a very concise 11-minute cut. (laughs) To which you were- I (laughs)
1: opened that link, and you were like, you have to watch this video because Will is in it. And I saw it was 11 minutes at the bottom of the YouTube frame, and I was like, I texted James right back, I'm gonna have to use vacation days to finish this video.
0: Yeah. So, it's so long. It's very long. But here's the thing. I think it's a really good sign that I jammed with someone who's been playing for a year and a half and felt compelled to have an 11 minute video. Now, this is a whole nother conversation for another podcast. But I think people make videos for different reasons. And the reasons that I make videos have changed over time. But now to me, it's more like what I think people take family photos for. It's kind of like a nice memory <laughs> that I have that I like, especially with someone like Will, who I really care about all my Duke freestylers. They feel like my students, my mentees, whatever you want to call it. And so I'm really proud to watch their progress. So it's really fun for me to have videos of them. So for instance, I occasionally go back and watch the first video with Ben or Brendan, and it just makes me feel good, even though the freestyle isn't that good. So especially for a video with Will, a big part of it is just having that memory lockdown. But then i also wanted him to have video of himself because i think it's so helpful to take videos to learn how to play better and i actually made a separate video that i did not make you watch that was 13 to fifteen minutes of just will so i basically took every time he either caught it or almost caught it cut it together so that he could watch that Mm. and hopefully learn things from that but all this is to say, I understand the videos are way too long and the audience for them is incredibly <laughs> small, even within the freestyle community. So please don't think I am, I don't know, egotistical enough to think that everyone wants to watch 11 minutes of me freestyling. But that's okay. it's not it's not for you if it's too long for you. That's all I want to say okay. about that.
1: But that explanation, it makes way more sense because I you're watching it with a different purpose than I am, because when I'm coaching someone right now and when they send me videos, I love watching all of it. I'll watch like 30 minutes of practice videos because it's like a different purpose.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it, I don't think of the freestyle videos I make as for entertainment <laughs> by itself, I guess, you know, I mean, especially nowadays when TikTok's really popular and videos are seven seconds or less and that's for people's entertainment. That's the kind of hit your dopamine circuit at full volume, but that's not really what I'm trying to do. And maybe it's cause I'm old and I didn't grow up <laughs> with that kind of stuff. And for me, they were always started out as educational and they've continued to be educational. And there's also almost like a archive purpose to it of here's everything that I've done in freestyle. So if someone wanted to retrace my steps, they could. I don't know if that's valuable or not, but anyways, I understand it's not entertaining. And so for all the people, it's really just you, but I'm sure other people complain too without saying it to my face. I know they're too long. I totally understand. (laughs) They're way too long. I was joking with Will the whole time that the video was going to be way too long, but it was super fun jam, and it was super fun editing the video. And I learned from editing the video that Will is even better than I thought he was. I mean, even this jam, I recognize that he was playing far better than even a month ago. But when I edit the video, I'm usually so brutal about cutting anything that I think is flawed, especially lack of consecutivity. And sometimes that's really hard when I'm editing freestyle videos where I'm playing with other people who probably aren't going to live up to my ideals of freestyle. And so I usually cut a lot of stuff that they probably wish I didn't cut because I just won't tolerate a three-second the pause in the middle of their combo. <laughs> but when I was editing Will, he didn't have any of that. So there was so much more to take from Will than I would have expected. But anyways, I didn't mean to talk this long about the video, but I brought it up because when we were discussing this, I said we should talk about predicting player outcomes because I think I'm really slow to recognize or anoint someone as a future Star player, world champion caliber, (laughs) best player in the world, kind of thing, and I'm sort of ready to do that for Will, and I just wanted to talk about how how do you tell how good a player is going to be early on in their freestyle career? Because I think like any sport, it's really hard to know how good someone's going to be, and I think a lot of people are sometimes overzealous in labeling people as future superstars. Sometimes. to those players detriment but anyways I thought we should talk about it so starting maybe just with Will you said that you anointed him a year ago which I think is accurate I think I remember you telling me you thought Will was going to be the best and I was a little slower as I often am but what did you see in Will a year ago that made you think he was going to be one of the best players and how does that translate to just any player who's coming up right now
1: yes I think this does apply to
0: everyone so
1: there's two parts there's the physical part and the mental part and on the physical part i think he has the ideal body type it's like tall thin lanky flexible but also strong Mm -hmm. it's like internal strength matters a lot because you have to hold your legs up and holding your legs up takes a lot of strength that people don't know but he's also really fast he has like all the strengths you need for a freestyle body And what about the mental part? He does wear Adidas.
0: (laughs) That's very important. Shout out Adidas.
1: What's the mental part? So the mental part, this is like my podcast crush is Angela Duckworth. And she talks about this all the time. And the number one predictor of success is enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And Will is very enthusiastic. Like he may not be the loudest person on the field, but you can tell that he's very enthusiastic.
0: That's a great point. I think he is really quiet. And I think when he starts going to tournaments, he might fly under the radar a little bit because of that. But as you point out, just because someone's really quiet doesn't mean they aren't super enthusiastic. I think you're a good example of that too. I think you've always been really quiet and you were especially quiet at the beginning of your freestyle career, but you've always been, or at least for a long time, you were among the most enthusiastic people about the sport. But I thought you were gonna say something else about the mental aspect because I know, and we might've even talked about this before, Last year at Virginia, Will competed in his first tournament with Doug Simon, and you don't really know what to expect from somebody in terms of competition until they actually compete. So some players can be absolutely incredible, but they just don't have that competing mindset, whatever that means. And vice versa, some players aren't very good, but have an incredible competitive mindset. And it's it's not highly correlated, so you can't look at someone's Mm -hmm. jamming and say, oh, I know they're going to be great at competing or not. It's completely random. And I'll give specific examples at my own peril. So German PK, one of the best freestylers I've ever seen, really inspired a ton of my game. I met him, or at least kind of discovered his game in 2013, and he had a huge impact on me. But I think he would say himself, competing is really a struggle for him. But if you watched him play, you wouldn't necessarily think he's not going to be a good competitor because he's... Playing at such a high level, but it's just not for him. On the other side, another Berliner, Boguslav Bo, who's a really good player, but he's not probably most people listening to this podcast don't know who he is. He's just a pretty casual freestyler who played back from, I don't know when he started, but he played a lot from probably 2006 to 2012. He's one of the best competitors I've ever seen. You could pull up <laughs> videos of him, and he just never drops it. He's so consistent. He can always hit his best moves. So that's just an example of two players on different sides of the skill spectrum, but who have opposite competitive skill sets. So, I do want to say that you ahead.
1: can learn. You can learn to be a good competitor. Like that's a skill that can be practiced, and you'll get better at it.
0: That's true. And I was actually going to come back to. You know, talking about Will's physical strengths, because I don't think it's surprising to say that in any sport, your physical attributes can play a role in how successful you are at the sport. It's not hard to look at a sport like basketball and say, you know, there's never been a player shorter than 5'2", or whatever it is, and there's probably only been a couple players shorter than 5'10", or 5'11". So that's just an unfortunate reality that some people get innate advantages because of their genes and their physical attributes, but like you said, with mindset, I think people can learn to maximize their body types. But to go back to the mental side of things, and what I thought you were going to talk about with Will, is when Will played with Doug in Virginia, he far exceeded his skill level in the competition, meaning, and this is a rare attribute that I think the best competitors have, competing made him better like he could only do the things he was doing because he was in a competitive round and that adrenaline made him a better player. So he shocked you, me, and Daniel. We were literally laughing out loud while he was playing because we could not believe what was happening. He caught some (laughs) absurd number of catches in a row. I think he pulled out two catches I'd never seen him do before. And he looked so stoic and calm and played really just incredibly well but anyways sorry don't want to make the whole podcast about how great will is but i do want to talk about our different time frames and kind of deciding that someone's going to be a great player so i think i'm really hesitant to do it because i've been burned so many times and here's what i mean by that i think a lot of times in my freestyle career there's been someone who gets mentioned whoever it is and people say oh this person they're so good they're going to be one of the best players in the world. I think I hear frequently, which is always very amusing because it's very personalized and it's kind of mean is people are always like, Oh, they're better than you and Daniel were when they were, (laughs) when you guys were in your second year. I'm like, okay, like sure, fine. Um, But most of the time it doesn't really pan out that way because I think a lot of people, they get complacent. I don't know if complacent is the right word. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting to a certain level of skill and deciding you're happy with what you can do and, being good with that. You know, there's no reason you should try to become one of the best resellers in the world. But I just think a lot of people, they reach a certain skill set. They're really happy with what they can do. And they stop growing as players and don't become among the best players in the world or real life gets in the way and they have a job change or they have kids. And so they can't keep going. So for me, it's really hard to keep getting excited about new players taking over as the best players in the world in the first few years because i usually feel like i don't know until it's almost already over you know what i mean (laughs) usually by the time i'm like oh yeah that is one of the best players in the world because they already are one of the best players (laughs) in the world so i'm i'm late to the party and that's that's what i hope the reason is because one thing i don't want to do because i feel like in my personal opinion some of the old school freestylers can do on social media is kind of poo-poo the new generation and be unwilling to recognize how amazing a lot of the modern freestylers are. And I I don't like how that made me feel when I was becoming a new freestyler, and I would never want to do that to somebody else. So I really try not to be dismissive or discouraging of new players, but I'm also a little bit more careful about saying, oh, I think this person's going to be one of the best players in the world. What do you think of all that?
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, do you think right now is the first time freestylers have been groomed? Because like in a lot of sports, you'll start with a player that's young and they have a lot of potential and you like make sure they learn things in the right order. Because when I was taught, I don't think, I don't wouldn't say I was groomed. It was more like they taught me the basics first and then I kept learning and I just built, like I just randomly got to where I am now. But with you and your Duke guys, you're specifically teaching them in the most optimal way possible.
0: That's a good question. I definitely think I groom the Duke Freestylers to be world caliber players. And I usually tell them early on, and if I, if I only if I feel like it's something that'll motivate them, something like you can be one of the best players in the world if you stick with this. And the reason I'm comfortable saying that despite everything I just said about being slow to anoint people is I know that if you're going to play with me every day, I will make sure that you get really good at freestyle. It would be hard for you not to get good at freestyle. Um, because most people don't get that experience, right? Most people don't get to learn freestyle from a professional who is dedicating themselves to making you better.
1: Yeah. That experience is unique.
0: And now I'm thinking whether I was groomed or if Daniel was groomed. So I think I talked before, we definitely had a huge advantage learning how to play in New York City. And I think about that all the time. I don't know, like this is kind of a digression, but let's take it. Like where's the best place in the world to be a new freestyler right now, learning how to play?
1: Right now, I would, actually that's, it must be Duke, right?
0: Yeah, I think Duke, but even if you took Duke off the table, what would it be?
1: You would need an active jam scene that's consistent with more. I think you need at least two mentors in the scene because, like, one is not consistent enough. And I don't know if Seattle has. I mean, like when I was learning, Seattle was a great place. Yeah, but now everyone's older and has like a family.
0: I think there's an obvious example, but after that, besides Duke, after that, it becomes a lot less obvious. Yeah, I'm trying
1: to think of. Because you like you and Daniel came up in the New York scene, but it's not what it used to be, right?
0: No. But first, let me say the obvious example. I think Roveretto okay. is gonna be one of the best places you can learn to play right now because you're gonna have Edo there who can devote a lot of himself to helping you get better. But you also have other top caliber freestylers like Andrea and Mattia, who can make sure you have the jam you need when you need it.
1: I see. I definitely agree that they have the consistency and they have the skill. I like the playing skill, but I think you have something past. It's like like the greatest coaches or like tell me if this is true like are the great basketball coaches good players back in the
0: day? They're definitely not the best players, right? But they're good players. They're usually good players or like I don't I'm probably not the most educated about this, but a lot of coaches were strong Non star players or superstar bench players. So, like Steve Kerr, the Golden State Warriors coach, he played with the Chicago Bulls during some of Michael Jordan's championship seasons. Doc Rivers was a player. Greg Popovich was a player, although I don't know if he had much of an NBA career. So, do you think? Go ahead. Okay, here.
1: Do you think all good players could become good coaches?
0: I don't think so. I think it depends. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think it so, depends a lot on like a million things. But what are, what are you thinking?
1: I'm thinking Roboreto has the good players, but I don't know if they have the best coaches yet because yeah. I think that's your, your, like Duke's advantage is like they have you with, who's like both a good player and a good coach.
0: But why do you think I'm a good coach?
1: Because I think you spend a lot of time thinking about how to be a good coach.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's interesting because I think, I mean, I personally would like to think I'm a good coach because like you said, I do think a lot about how to help people get better. I think I'm overly analytical sometimes about my own game and my own progress. And I remember my process and it's easier for me to explain to people how I learned than maybe other people who learn more organically and aren't thinking it through a lot. And then, you know, I have teaching experience and I'm a lawyer. So a lot of my job is trying to explain something that I know to somebody else to make it understandable to them. But I think even more than those attributes, what makes Duke a good place to learn is that I apply brute force to the situation. So (laughs) I provide all the nails. I provide all the disc. I provide all the time. Basically, if you want to jam anytime, anywhere, I will move heaven and earth to be there. And I think that probably makes a bigger difference than my coaching. And That's
1: why enthusiasm is a good predictor of success. They're like, whatever it takes.
0: True. And there should be a whole other podcast about me and others trying to learn and figure out how to be better coaches. Because one thing I've been trying to figure out a lot is the right balance between hands-on and freedom. So like, how often should I be giving direct advice, saying something like, Oh, think about this when you try that move. And how often should I just say nothing and let them keep trying it, getting it wrong and let them figure it out on their own. And I'm sure that depends on the person. You kind of have to get a sense for them and Mm -hmm. that's how I think about it. But I'm learning more and more that less is more because just like me and you and basically everyone else who plays most of this, you're going to kind of figure out on your own. And sometimes you can, cut cut some shortcuts for them to say, hey, think about your footwork there. And it'll make them think about something they probably never would have thought of because I didn't think about it for the first seven years of playing. But otherwise, they kind of need to make the mistakes themselves before or, or it won't really sink in for them. Yeah, makes sense. But outside of Roveretto, I think it gets harder. I think some scenes are almost burdened by their success. So the Berlin Jam scene, there's so many players there but it's also very decentralized. And I think you'd be playing with different people every day and you wouldn't necessarily build a relationship with a small cohort of people. And then I think there's parts of the Berlin Jam scene that are very conducive to getting better. So for instance, it's much more of a mob-op scene. And so if you're trying to learn in a mob-op environment, you're going to get a lot less disk time. And there's going to be so much more pressure to not mess up the mob-op that... I think it's harder to learn. So I actually foster a lot more indies at Duke than maybe I would like as a personal preference because I think it helps them learn faster because they have the total freedom to work out their moves. And basically, to me, the worse you are, the more indies I make sure you get. And the better you get, the more co-ops I do.
1: No, I definitely agree with that. And thinking back to when I was learning, when it was a smaller group and I would focus on indies, in the jam, that really was helpful.
0: Yeah, and I can't remember if I told the story or not, but I came to that realization when Manu Zak from Berlin visited New York. And he's also a great example, by the way, of someone maybe who was anointed too early as a future superstar freestyler. Because when he visited us, whenever it was, 2010, 2011, he was definitely a big up-and-coming freestyler. There'd been a really popular Stefan Stoll video of him to like urban freestyle or something and he was young and he was fired up and he was enthusiastic and had a bunch of really incredible moods and when he came to visit he was really fired up about daniel and me but he said something like i just wish i had gotten to learn here because it's so much harder for me to learn in berlin and he mm-hmm. pointed specifically to mob hopping and said the amount of time i get the disc every day versus the amount of time you get the disc every day and the amount of freedom I have when I do get the disc versus you is so different. And I never really thought about it that way, but it definitely has colored how I teach people to just try to give them as much this time as I can. Now, we'll let's p- pivot back. I want to put a placeholder on this, but one other thing to say about it is what you need as a new freestyler changes depending on where you are. So at the very, very beginning, I actually do do almost all co-ops, because I know you can't do anything on your own and I don't <laughs> want to, you just, I don't want to just keep throwing it to you. And it just keep bouncing off your hand. So I'll do co-op so that I can fill in the gaps of your skill level, just to make sure it's not totally misleading. But once you have the, at least a smidgen of the basic skills, I start trying to give you as much dis time as I can and kind of keep you out of everything else so that you can focus on your game. But going back to the original thing about player predicting player outcomes, The reason I think it's really interesting is, and I probably get this more than most people, because Dan and I got really good really quickly. We're a common point of comparison. And also I think because if you're talking to me, it's more likely that you're going to use me as a point of comparison than somebody else. So I hear all the time about how someone's learned as quickly or more quickly than Daniel and me. And my response to that, which I often tell this to new players, is I don't Really care how good you get, how quickly, because I don't think that's very helpful to understanding how good you're going to be as a player.
1: It's neither a good predictor or, yeah, it's not a good predictor. Yeah. Is that what you're saying?
0: It's almost, it's not only a bad predictor, but it can be a reverse self fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) So, like, (laughs) if someone thinks they're learning really quickly. At a fast pace, I think they grow more complacent more quickly. And Do you think so? Yeah. I thought
1: it was always independent. Like someone who's enthusiastic will get fired up by learning quickly. So they'll learn even quicker.
0: So one thing I read a long time ago, and I don't know if this is scientific, so I'm almost loath to say it. So take that, take this with a grain of salt. But I read something about how talent can backfire a lot because people learn really quickly but as soon as they start hitting the barriers and reach the limits of their talent, which we should do a whole episode on talent. I think it's a very fraught word that I have a lot of negative feelings about, but I'll use it for now because people sort of understand what it means. I think I've I've read at one point that when people hit their talent barrier, if they haven't had to work through it very often before, they can get frustrated more quickly and and, and stop improving. So there's something about not having a lot of talent that can really help you because you learn early on the tenacity that you need to get better. I know. I could talk a lot about
1: talent. I like the definition of it's like how much you improve per one unit of practice
0: is huh. talent. That's interesting because I think of it more like your built-in advantage before you even start whatever the new activity is.
1: I guess it can mean both. True. But yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, I now my brain is swirling with lots of things to say about it. But there's another thing I wanted to say about getting good quickly that's interesting. I actually did a very anecdotal thing a couple of years ago where I asked people to send me videos of them and their first year of playing. And I had a bunch of people send me videos of themselves. And here's the thing, kind of everyone is really good in their first year. And I think people really underestimate how much of your game is already present in your first year or first couple years.
1: Is that selection bias? I'm like, for one, like everyone who has a nice looking first year video is gonna send it to you, but also everyone who's still around probably had a good first year.
0: Absolutely, so I was thinking more, I thought about both of those theories. I think the second one is more compelling to me that the people who do better early on stick with it which I know kind of contradicts what I just said about talent can maybe put a ceiling on how good you get when you reach your talent barrier. So I understand that I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but totally agree with that. Um, and I don't really have a good way of reconciling that, but part of why I bring it up is that's the sirens call of someone seeming like they're going to be a superstar early is that everyone kind of seems that way. And a great example is Daniel. If you go back and watch Daniel, I actually think this is no longer on YouTube because probably nobody watched it for 10 years. So YouTube finally took it down. But there (laughs) used to be a video of my first world's routine with Daniel. And he does like a beautiful spinning laser and like flawed and bad attitude. He basically has a lot of the elements that are still a big part of his game now back then. And a lot of the form was there too. So, but part of my theory is that move for move you learn a lot of the base moves really quickly there aren't that many catches i mean even with will yesterday we kind of had a teaching day and i was just going through my head and i kind of thought like you sort of know all the catches like there's not that many catches left to (laughs) learn and so maybe it's just that the level one of most of your skills get developed in the first one to two years but it's the next eight years where you go from level one at everything to level 99 at everything. But that's mm-hmm. why people seem so good because you're watching them and you say, wow, they just did a barrel guide us and a scarecrow and they can roll and they can kick and they can tip. They can do everything. And they've only been playing two years. They must be a superstar. But I'm, my hypothesis is that that's because learning the moves in their most basic sense, even if you don't have complete mastery over them, doesn't take that long. I mean, there's an old expression about the blues. It takes a day to learn, but a lifetime to master. So I think there's a little (laughs) bit of an element of that to freestyle. You can grow your arsenal very quickly, but that doesn't mean you've mastered it. I see.
1: I wonder if it's like a marriage where in the beginning there's the honeymoon period, but what really makes it work is like year five, if you can figure out how to keep the magic alive. And the really great players figured out how to keep The Magic Alive in year five.
0: That's my big thing. That's what I tell everybody, especially my new players when they're struggling. Because one thing that's hard when you have a lot of new players at the same time is some of them are going to learn a lot faster than the others. And when I feel like someone is getting down about that, I say it's not about year one, it's about year five. Because it's just like you said, it's at that point when you've kind of, grown into your freestyle style and you kind of have most of the moves that you're ever going to learn, that really determines your future. Are you going to keep going, keep growing, add a level of mastery and sophistication to your game year by year, brick by brick? Or are you going to say, hey, I can do all the moves I wanted to do and I'm done. And there's no rush to get to that time. I mean... Your life is so long that I'm probably going to say this a hundred times on the podcast. My, the best advice I ever got was that life is long. You have so much time to learn everything. And especially in my experience as a freestyler, it's your, we'll call it the second half of your first decade is the most important half to deciding what kind of player you're going to be. Okay. And there are lots of examples of players that weren't shining superstars at the beginning, but who became that. And I think the best example of that is Graph. Graf Murdy, I don't know how old he was. I think maybe it is late 20s, early 30s, but I think he'd already been playing more than 10 years. Went from a good player or a great player to a all-time great. I mean, all-time superstar freestyler late in his career, and it was because he kept working and kept going. Nutzy Thomas Nutsi, he's someone who's just gotten better every year forever. And <laughs> yeah. I don't think he was a superstar player in year seven. I don't know when he started, but I think he is now. And I think he became that so slowly that no one even noticed just suddenly there. He was one of the most creative and innovative players making the podiums and pairs of the world championship. I mean, that those kind of stories are, are everywhere and I'll even use me and Daniel at my own peril. And I think Daniel said this once and I hadn't really thought about it much before. And I was like, Oh, that's totally true. but. I think Daniel was way better than me for most of the first five years that we played. And it took me a long time to catch up. Luckily, I think I was just delusional enough to feel like we were at rough parity, so it didn't really (laughs) destroy my ego too much. But looking back on it, even just watching videos of us, I'm like, wow, Like just from form alone, he looks so much more polished than I did. But I also remember at random times, people saying basically how much better Daniel was than me. Um, and particularly those kind of things. Like I know Roger was like, oh man, like James, you need to take dance lessons because Daniel's just <laughs> lapping you. And so, and, but you just gotta keep going. Like if you feel like you're lagging behind, just don't ever feel that way because you always have time. And I think everybody's improvements happen at different times in their career. So you might have your big leap in year three, but you also might have your big leap at year 10. And just be patient because it will come. You can't put in hours at this and not get better eventually. Yeah.
1: Do you think everyone has those leap moments in the future? I th- I think so, but it's it's kind of you like just you said about know. like self-selection. Yeah.
0: How would you know? I mean, if yeah. people stop trying to grow, you'll never know what they could have been. But I just think it's so common that someone you thought stopped growing has some life circumstance change and they start playing more and then suddenly they're better. I mean, it's hard for you not to get better if you keep doing something and do it in a way designed even minimally to improve. If you are trying Mm -hmm. to do new things or do things in a better way, your brain can't help but learn to do it better.
1: It seems like luck is such a big part of success now because it's like having just the time to put into playing Frisbee is like, Basically luck. Like you don't know if you're gonna have the time in the five years from now.
0: Absolutely. And I should have said this earlier, but the kinds of situations I'm talking about where I say someone was presented as a future best player and they didn't really pan out, some of that time it's because they stopped trying to grow. And like I said, that can be a totally valid voluntary choice of I'm happy with where I am. I'm a casual freestyler and I don't need to be one of the best. Totally cool. But a lot of times it is luck-based things if something changes in your life that makes it harder for you to play i mean you can you know have a knee injury or break a hip or whatever and suddenly you can't keep growing and keep pushing yourself so luck's a big part of it but i think you're also talking about just the luck of your circumstance we were so lucky to be learning how to play where we were playing we were lucky that we found it at the time we found it I was really lucky, although some of this was self-designed, to have seven years of school where I had a lot less on my plate than someone who was working full-time, where I could dedicate myself to freestyle. And we've both been lucky to have the resources to travel to become better players, which a lot of people don't get to do. But, Mm -hmm. well, let me stop there. Any thoughts on that?
1: No, no, I agree with
0: all that. Okay, but here's this other thing I thought about a lot lately, and I don't know if I can articulate it very well. There's another kind of luck and it's probably also relates a little bit to talent, but there's another kind of luck that's, I think of it almost like laboratory luck of if you imagine like a chemist trying to come up with some new life-saving drug and they're kind of just mixing chemicals to see what works. Some chemists just get lucky, right? They happen to mix the right ingredients to create the new life-saving drug. And I think there's an element to that when you're learning how to freestyle of a lot of times you don't really know the right way to do something. You can watch 10 different people do it and they probably all do it in slightly different ways. And you probably won't even be able to pick up on or perceive all the things that they're doing because you're not at that skill level yet. So, and most people don't even do that. They just know there's a thing called a back roll. And so they start trying to do it. And when you try to learn something new, and you don't have detailed instructions on how to do it, which is most of the time as a freestyler, you're kind of guessing at the right way to do it. And sometimes mm-hmm. you're gonna guess really well and pick up the perfect technique. And sometimes you're gonna guess not so well and you're gonna learn a really suboptimal technique. Do you think that's yeah. right and makes sense? Yeah.
1: I think there are lots of ways to increase your guessing, like, success rate.
0: Okay, let, let's come back to that, but let me give you an example okay. from my freestyle and I'm not even sure still whether I'm right about this, but when I first learned to roll, I if I was doing a clock roll, let's say, I would put my left foot forward because I saw a bunch of people do that and that sort of made mm-hmm. sense to me. And I rolled that way for I don't even know how long, at least five years, maybe seven or eight years. And eventually I felt like I reached this cap on my rolls and after a lot of trial and error, I switched my foot position and put my right foot forward and had to spend a lot of time relearning how to roll with my right foot forward. But now that I've done that, my roles reached new levels of utility and mm-hmm. capability. But that's an that's example- of a mentor is right? so important. But that's a great example of, if you don't know, you're kind of just guessing where your feet should be. So I put my feet in a certain way. I was able to learn how to roll that way. And I was able to roll in a way that seemed perfectly great. But at least for me, it turns out there was a better way to roll. And it took me eight years to find it. But if I had just happened to have switched feet at the beginning, I wouldn't have had to go through that relearning process. But what do you think are the ways to sort of circumvent that or at least make better guesses initially?
1: I think the easiest way is to find a coach or a mentor. Yeah. That's why it's like so important to have one in your community. That makes sense. But yeah. Yeah. I think I'm trying to think if there's even another way that's even like half as effective because like you can watch a lot of YouTube videos and the person's probably doing it the right way but it just doesn't translate in the same way it's like the human connection there's no human connection there you're like looking at pixels on a screen and your brain is like forming that into an image it's not the same as someone watching you and being like put your left foot back.
0: But I think in freestyle, especially, there's another problem, which is that a lot of people don't do things the optimal way because we don't really know. We don't have enough communal experience to have figured everything out.
1: Like we don't. No one knows the optimal way. Is that what you're saying? Like we're not mature enough as a sport? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because compared to something like baseball, where you can go to a scientific baseball lab where they will film you at incredible frame rates and they will say if you move your middle finger a millimeter to the right and half a millimeter up we can add six rpms to your whatever curve i don't ball. think we're,
1: we're like you know how there's in history like first we invented steam and then there's like well, i mean the bronze age then the steam then we have like electronics yeah we're still like two generations behind looking at things in a lab like we haven't got to the part where everyone shares their individual uh like findings and we make like an encyclopedia on paper yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. And sort of following up on that, it's kind of like we haven't we don't have we don't have big enough sample sizes for someone to do that aggregation and say, hey, if you look at people who have their right foot forward on a clock roll, they have much higher success rates than people with the left foot, whatever it is. But like other sports have gone through that and they figured out here are the things that matter and here are the things that don't. Because I do think there are some things that don't matter. I don't know much about this, but for instance, I've been told by you and others that no one knows that there's a proper putting technique in disc golf. If it it works, it works. That's fine. But, But there are other things where there absolutely is a proper technique and you should be doing something a certain way that not everyone realizes. And I think there are a lot of things like that in freestyle. I'm sure there are things in freestyle. It doesn't matter that much how you do it. And a great example is the throw, right? So I'm sure that just like, pitching in baseball, enough time, enough experimentation, and enough scientifically minded people could figure out a bunch of really optimal throwing techniques. But I also think there are probably aspects of your technique that don't matter. And the reason I think that is I have a Z meter that measures how much spin you throw. And sometimes I'll experiment and try different grips or different body positions or different flexing or different muscles to see if I can increase my spin. And sometimes it's frustrating how Every throw is the same amount of spin, no matter what I change. and it's sort of like, okay, none of those things matter, apparently, but there are some things <laughs> that do, and I think eventually we would figure it out. But I do that
1: is- as well, like anything I can measure, but I'm always worried. I'm like, maybe if I tried a hundred times in a row, the hundred and first one, I would have seen improvement, But I just skipped over it because the first fifty times, there was no improvement. Well, it's also so hard.
0: yeah, but it's so hard when you're a sample size of one, right? because yes. there's so much that confounds doing it properly scientifically so for instance i think one thing i would do is let's say i'm trying three different throwing techniques i'll go a b, c, a b c a b c a b c a b c and i'll just keep i'll like try to do them sequentially so that if my arm is getting tired like over enough time it'll affect the throws more or less equally with maybe a negligible advantage to the a's versus the c's but you just can't know, like you can't do a double blind study on yourself, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I, maybe the way I assume a certain technique is going to be better is coloring how I'm like the amount of force I'm using on that throw and that's affecting the results. So it's, it's really hard to make those kinds of improvements.
1: Yeah. I was just going to make one tangent, like bike science has come so far and what they're realizing is everybody's bike fit is different. Mm-hmm. And like the only way to like they're like right now freestyle is at a point where we're like trying to find like the conventional wisdom. And it's like everyone should roll with their left foot back. Yeah. But it like there's another step after that where it's like everyone is going to break the rules in some different way. And we have to figure out what rules you can break.
0: Yeah. And
1: the only way to do that is to put the person in the wind tunnel and spend whatever $10,000 <laughs> like sewing them a personalized suit. And like I wish we More could like do that. a $100,000. <laughs>
0: It would be so expensive. Um, but c- taking this back to the predicting player outcomes, something as simple as what self-throwing technique you happen to land on at the beginning of your freestyle career is incredibly important. If it turns mm-hmm. out that you're able to throw yourself high spin early on, you're going to catapult in skill. But if that takes Maybe you a little longer... Maybe there should be a
1: list. Or... It's like a threshold. You have to like reach a certain threshold and like having a strong self-throw gets you 30% of the way there. But you still need that other 70% from...
0: And what's the threshold keeping you from? Like what? why are you trying to meet the threshold? Is it like...
1: That's when you get the superstar status. Got it. Or maybe superstar status becomes an option.
0: I was almost thinking of it like you have to meet these criteria before I let you try certain things. So it's like you have to learn how to do a self-throw now. Before I'm going to let you start working on a role because the role's not as important as the self throw to you mm-hmm. becoming a better player.
1: I definitely think that way, but I'm not sure if I'm that's correct the more I think about it.
0: Well, I think it's incorrect in the sense that I've said before, which is I want people to learn whatever they want to learn. It's mm-hmm. almost like your enthusiasm thing like their yep. enthusiasm is so much more important that letting them work on their own things is better than forcing them to work on things they don't want to work on. But maybe that goes to the luck bit of it too. Like if you are lucky enough to be interested in the self throw, that's <laughs> going to really help you. Okay. To another digression. Here's the thing that always really bothers me about how people think of other people. And I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, but I'll explain it in two different senses. One, which might not even be related, but it's how this always comes up for me. Whenever people talk about what they wish they could change about themselves or what they wish they could do for their children. They always say like, Oh, I would make them smarter and stronger and whatever. And one that always drives me crazy because I'm just sort of like, well, I would make them kinder and more content. And there's <laughs> like so many better traits to optimize than intelligence and physical prowess. But it seems to be the things that people are most obsessed with and improving in themselves and others. Um, but the reason I, bring this out, because I think about this a lot, we talk about how lucky people are in terms of their physical gifts or how unlucky they are. So take like an easy example that I know has a lot of problematic baggage with it. But if you think about like people who are naturally physically fit and people who are kind of naturally overweight and you would say, well, the physically fit person is so lucky that they have a high metabolism that allows them to eat garbage and still be fit. Whereas someone else can eat perfectly healthy every day and just really struggle to maintain a healthy weight. And that's, you know, bad luck. But what people don't really talk about a lot is how lucky and unlucky you can be in terms of certain like other attributes, like being hardworking, like someone can be really lucky to be born a hardworking person. Like an early
1: riser. There's a lot of data on that, right? Like if you wake up early versus yeah. a night owl, there's like strong correlation between success with one. Yeah. So people focus on. And you can't change your circadian rhythm or whatever.
0: Yeah. That's a great example. But you, know, I think one of my biggest gifts, at least in terms of being successful, but maybe not in terms of being happy with that success, is being pretty obsessive and pretty hardworking. So like, That is luck. It is luck that I was born with genes that make me obsessive and hardworking. And that has translated into me being a good freestyler and being a good law student or or whatever. But people don't talk about that very much, right? You're usually lucky because of the way you look or how tall Mm -hmm. you are, how strong you are, how fast you are. But people don't talk about how lucky you are in terms of being hardworking. Like another thing I think about how lucky I am, I'm so lucky that I loved school. That like school was something that I was really fascinated and fascinated by and interested in. Whereas a lot of people are really unlucky because they're born and they hate school. And there's no reason that when humans evolved over the millennia, that like the, the people who don't like school had other genes that were super important to our survival <laughs> yeah. and they're getting burned because they're born in two thousand twenty two and they're required to go to school for the first eighteen years of their life, you know?
1: Oh. I always remember that one line from Sin City where like the really brute, strong guy was like, if he was born 200 years ago and was a gladiator in Rome, he'd be, he'd be like the most valuable person. But in today's age, he's nothing.
0: He like, Although I think you mean more like 2000 years ago or how, how many okay. thousands of years ago. It was definitely not 200 years ago, but that's totally true. I mean, people like me and you would be far less valuable in the hunter-gatherer age, probably, than we are now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not particularly strong. I'm not particularly. It's fast. like my
1: eyesight, I would be. Useless.
0: I mean, technically, I was born and had to immediately have emergency sur- emergency surgery. I wouldn't have even survived if I had been born probably even in the 70s or 80s. So that's all luck. But I just bring that up because that to me is another big thing. Because you said the number one predictor of success is enthusiasm, but it's luck whether or not you're enthusiastic about something. That's so true, you know, and. Some of that's like finding your thing, right? I mean, if you're not enthusiastic about freestyle, you're probably not freestyling. And we're probably lucky in freestyle that no one would do it unless they were enthusiastic because there's no ulterior motive to doing it. Because mm-hmm. Okay, here's another question. This should be a whole other <laughs> podcast, but I know I've thought a lot about and we've talked a lot about what would freestyle look like if it were professionalized or you mean like soccer, where everyone plays soccer as yeah, a kid? Yeah, if it was like soccer and everyone in the world played, how much better would freestylers be than they are now?
1: they would be 10 times better. Like 100 times better, I think. The top level.
0: So I go back and forth. I tend to agree with you, but there's a couple caveats to it. So first, let me say what I thought of it now, which is although there aren't that many freestylers who play, I think you could have a hypothesis that because it's not only, not only is there no reason to freestyle, it's basically you're punished for being a freestyler because it's such an idiosyncratic weird thing to do that <laughs> it's not very normal. So you so you have to be extremely enthusiastic to do it. So there's self-selection towards people who are going to become better freestylers than what, like in other words, if we added another million freestylers, maybe we only get like two or three Matt Gothier level freestylers out of that because 99.9% of them, are people who only have enough enthusiasm to do it if it's mainstream so they have less enthusiasm than the idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic obsessives like us who are willing to freestyle despite the you know social ostracism that comes with it i see
1: but i think a lot of the advantages for freestyle are advantageous for a lot of sports so like all the good soccer players would also be really good at freestyle
0: yeah so that i agree with a hundred percent so i think you would have, well, there's a lot of things. You'd have that. You'd have like better starting points of the LeBron Jameses of the world deciding to become freestylers. You would have, I think, the thing that's most lacking from us, which is that, other than maybe a few players in the 80s, no one's been able to make this their professional life, mm-hmm. and that would make a huge impact. So I mean, I w- I often think about like, have I even hit 10,000 hours of freestyling? I'm not totally sure. There were times I thought I did, but when For I sure. actually yeah. really. it depends yeah, on how I
1: calculate it. I think I hit it in twenty seventeen, which is only nine years in.
0: I think it depends on how you count it. Like if you count all the time, I spend making videos and thinking about it, I think for sure. but if I just did hours of playing, I don't know, and then some people in the ten thousand hour, the ten thousand hour rule has its own problems. Don't get me wrong, yeah, but <laughs> it's fake, but yeah, fun to talk about, yeah, but it's a good proxy for like another conversation like I don't think it would surprise anyone that if you played for 20,000 hours, on average, you're going to be better than if you played 5,000 hours. But all is to say, like, the amount of time I played would be at least three times more, if not four or five times more, if this could have been my professional life.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: And that's obviously a big disadvantage that a future generation would have if freestyle was mainstream. Which is, again, to say that's one reason why freestyles might be 10 times better. But here's my other 10 times better wrinkle. Okay. There's this really challenging thing about assessing how much better someone is at something because margins, tiny margins matter so much. So here's my best example. And I don't know the numbers on this, so don't come at me for getting it totally wrong. But Usain Bolt is the fastest runner ever, at least when I was paying attention to running in the last Olympics or something. So like, let's assume Usain Bolt is a hundred thousand times better than me at running, which is probably true. But by the numbers, by how fast he can run 100 meters, is he even 50 percent faster than me? Like so, so all I'll just say is like the best runner ever is maybe 0.5 percent faster than the best the next best runner, and they're only like 10 percent better than the average. High school athlete, whatever. The, again, like I'm making the numbers yeah. up.
1: Yeah, it depends on what you're comparing, like what medium you're comparing in. Because I agree everything you just said about running. But what if you were comparing yourself against Simone Biles in gymnastics? Like she's also ten thousand times better, but her score would also be like a yeah. thousand times better.
0: So she's like not only relatively ten thousand times better, she's absolutely like maybe that's the way to do it. It's like a relative versus absolute thing. So like Usain Bolt is maybe absolutely. Fifty percent better than me in the sense that he runs fifty percent faster, but relatively, he's a million times better than me. I agree, and like in basketball, is similar. Like LeBron James is so much better than all these other basketball players, but if he gets hurt and you bring in a league average player and you make that player do what LeBron James is supposed to do, they're also going to score like maybe not thirty points, but twenty-two points or something. Like it's sort of (laughs) amazing how much production you can get from an average player versus an elite player. But again, all this to say is in freestyle, my, my kind of question is, I agree that future players in a mainstream environment could be 10 or 100 times better than we are. But my question is, how much absolutely better are they? Are they doing... I think way more. Absolutely. So like, what would I think be it's a hypothetical also, like freestyle move from a player 100 times better than us?
1: Yeah, like just look at top level gymnasts, not even top, like college level gymnasts are like the worst college level gymnasts is probably more fit and can do movements that no current freestyler in history has ever done.
0: I've definitely thought about that. And there's almost a part of me that would be worried that freestyle would just become a kind of gymnastics, but it sort of depends on how it evolves. But let's keep it narrow just to get a sense. So Let's take our favorite move to use as our benchmark for random things. Double spinning barrel guidance. What is the version of double spinning barrel guidance in the future in some hypothetical world where millions and millions of people freestyle?
1: I think it would be pulled. It would also be it, so. like double spinning barrel guidance is the hardest part of the catch. That would be like the opener. That'd be like you're set into your hard thing.
0: Yeah. See, but I thought you were going to go there because I I can certainly do a double spinning barrel guide as well, And I feel like it has to be like upside down and there has to be like a flip in there and three spins or something. But- yeah,
1: I think it wouldn't, it would cap out. Like it's, that's too low on the spectrum. Like the peak double spinning barrel guidance is, is so low compared to what I think a future person, like the ideal freestyler could do that it would only be used as a setup. It's like how you do a double spinning pull into your actual like
0: hard double spinning catch. Because I also wonder because there's different level, there's different ways for better freestylers to be better. And right now we're talking it talking about it in the sense in of diff, yeah of like harder moves. Whereas I'd be more interested in consistency because I think at a certain point things become almost gimmicky. So for instance, I think even today there's lots of top players who can hit quadruple spinning and quintuple spinning moves but like even now I feel like I can triple most things pretty well but I don't really want to and I don't feel compelled to and to me like triples are kind of the limit of what I think are cool and not gimmicky now that's going to be that's personal preference other people might disagree but I think in the future if everyone could do six spinning pole combos I don't know if they necessarily want to because it starts to become something else. and But I could be wrong about that. And instead, what would make the future players so much better is that they are nearing 99% consistency mm-hmm. on all the moves that we do in basically any conditions.
1: Yeah, I think they would do harder things in the same situation. So like the reason the six-spinning move is gimmicky is because you would set it higher. But what if you did the six spins off the triple set? Then yeah, it's not so gimmicky, right?
0: Very true. Then there's another aspect of it too, which kind of goes to the sport versus art thing, where if you take jazz, for instance, it's been a long time since I was interested in following the history and progression of jazz. So sorry if I get some of this wrong. But in, say, the 30s and 40s, jazz musicians got so technically good at their instruments and... It ushered in this era of bebop jazz where everyone's playing really fast, putting tons of notes into their solos. And it was all about demonstrating technical abilities and oversimplifying a thousand percent. Miles Davis, who had been one of the people really pushing the limits, maybe not him personally, but his band and his bandmates, because he wasn't necessarily like a crazy technical high skilled player. Sorry for the blasphemy. Um, he came with an album called so what, and the first song had two chords in it and basically two notes that were changing, um, uh, key a little bit, but like basically it's just like a two note song and the solos were <laughs> super chill, super drawn out. And he called it so what on purpose to be like, so what, that you can do all this crazy technical stuff. That's not what the music is about. So I can also imagine there's this element of freestyle that gets to my kind of, fear about it becoming basically a gymnast sport that I think there would be this pushback of saying, even though people are able to do crazier things, that's not necessarily what we want to do. And I think it would also be kind of counter to jamming, right? Like jamming Mm. is not conducive to doing backflip gymnast combos, right?
1: I've always said there needs to be a bigger separation between jamming and competing.
0: Fair. What's like a sport like that, though, where like you have some leisure activity that you do that requires a certain kind of skill set, but then other people do this crazy thing that's com- almost completely unrelated to the leisure activity?
1: Skateboarding, because a lot of people just skateboard for commuting
0: and then there's people going off ramps into the air, maybe. That is a good example. Skateboarding is always such a mystery to me because I've almost never seen a good skateboarder. <laughs> like It seems like everyone's really bad at skateboarding. Until you turn on the X games and see incredible skateboarders. So that's probably a great example the gap between your average skateboarder and a pro is pretty, pretty wild, but skateboarding's Yeah. I don't know about skateboarding. I know a little bit cause I had a big Rodney Mullen phase, but like how much better are skateboarders today than Rodney Mullen was at the beginning of skateboarding. I don't know if they're. From my lay perspective, I don't know if they're a hundred times better. Huh, that's interesting, yeah, I don't know either. yeah, maybe we'll have to get some skateboarding expert the, my, my thing is, I just don't know like i I'm really tempted to just say obviously they would be a thousand times better because I think it's it's like virtue signaling. It's easy for me to be all like dismissive of how we play today and and sound all like noble and modest, but I really don't know i I go back and forth on it. There are days where I think they would obviously be way better than us. And there are days where I think they'd be better than us, but I wouldn't. Kind of the question is if I went to a jam, putting aside our distinction between jamming and competition, but if I went to a jam in 50 years with top level players, would I just be, would they be laughing at me? Like, would they, would I be able to like understand what they're doing and meaningfully communicate with them? Or would it just be unrecognizable to me?
1: No, I have, I've thought about this and I think. We would go into the B jam and be comfortable, but we could adapt into the A jam.
0: Hmm. Yeah. There's also a big looming question of how could technology change everything? Like if there was some newfangled silicone or lubricant that made the disc spin four times longer and some new disc with better materials and weight distribution. I mean, there's lots of things that could open up the game more than it is now. Yep. But we strayed. <laughs> it, what? Anything Anything else on the question of predicting player outcomes? I think I covered most of the things I wanted to say about it. I just think it's... I, actually, there's one other component that I've sort of hinted at that I haven't really talked enough about, but I worry sometimes that anointing people too soon can disrupt their progress because they... Either it's a little bit like the talent ceiling aspect of once it starts getting hard to become better at the rate people expect, people get discouraged. But there's kind of this element, and I don't have a better word for this, and I don't mean it so much in a pejorative sense, but there's a certain arrogance you can get if you get really good really quickly that can keep you from realizing how much more you have to grow.
1: Yeah, I know. I was wondering if you were going to use Will's name in the podcast because when he listens to it we're going to he's going to hear us talking about him being the potential best player ever.
0: I know that's it's it's worth the risk. There's just going to be times <laughs> where more. I talk about the Duke freestylers and they might they might hear about it. But I I think part of why I'm comfortable using Will's name is that based on what I know about him, I'm not worried about these kinds of things affecting him like they might leave your
1: ego at the door.
0: Yeah, I I think ego I think Will is a really just grounded person who's not going to be influenced by that. And, you know, the way, the way he talks about getting better is the way I always thought about it when I was getting better. And I think he's always going to find ways to fuel his growth. But I want to keep talking about the cocky thing, because I think there's kind of two components of it. I mean, one, there is this kind of element of arrogance of where you become, again, I don't like using arrogance. It's such a mean word. And I don't necessarily think people are, I don't even know if it's necessarily a bad thing all the time, but like people kind of become a little delusional and they don't realize Mm. that they're not as good as they think they are. And I, I think about this a lot about how sometimes in the freestyle community, we're so encouraging that sometimes we encourage bad behavior or like bad techniques. So I'm trying to give a concrete example, but sometimes someone's trying to do something and I can tell right away that just the way they're approaching it really isn't going to work, but it's kind of exciting. And so every time they try it, they get cheered for it. <laughs> and I'm just worried, like, we're reinforcing this technique or this approach that down the road is really going to hurt this player. And maybe we need to be more careful about that. But I think the same thing happens in terms of making people feel like they're better than they are. Like if people think they're at the same level as a Ryan Young when they really aren't, they're not going to be pushed to get better in the same way and they might not know because they get so much positive feedback especially at the beginning like if you are a new player and you are doing remotely well you get so much positive feedback that it's hard to know really where your skill lies on the spectrum I see
1: maybe it's just yeah it's just luck but what can you do for the people who aren't lucky that can automatically tell what their skill level like what can we do for the like the general community to improve like the entire like what is that saying like all rising tide lifts all boats like what is that solution
0: well i mean first i think you're really blessed if you are able to accurately assess your skill level i think being able to do that is really helpful in the long run as long as you stick with it so that's
1: luck based though right i think well what do you do for all the people that can't do that
0: so if you can't really i don't know i mean I think competing can help because losing can be a really good antidote to that. So, I
1: <laughs> what like your mentor does your mentor have to come in and be like, Hey, actually, your throw isn't that good?
0: Yeah, I mean, that helps a lot. So, you're referring to when Roger Meyer told me late in my career, Hey, your throw is really bad and you need to get better at that. And that was really eye opening. And it kind of made concrete something that I was kind of batting around in my unconscious as a possibility. But I think losing helps, but you also have to be able to have a growth mindset about losing. So I think, and I won't use any particular people here for obvious reasons, but I think there have been times where people have gotten a lot of really positive feedback that made them view themselves as better players than they really were. But then when they weren't doing well in tournaments, they became really upset with how the judging system worked or how the results were or whatever. And I'm talking about years ago, years ago. And I think a lot of the times it's because we as a community do people a disservice, we lift them up and talk about how amazing they are, but we don't tell them that, yeah, but you're still not as good as Pavel and Ryan. And that's why you lost to them at that <laughs> tournament. And so like that can be for some people, that's the antidote. They realize that they're not succeeding in competition and that's a really concrete way to get negative feedback. But some people don't do the right thing and they don't grow from it. Instead, they just, like a lot of people quit. I mean, the people I'm thinking of basically stopped competing. And Mm. that's just a reality. But I don't really have other solutions. If I thought about it more, maybe I could come up with more. Okay, I like the growth mindset. I think watching yourself helps too. I mean, I've said it earlier today and I say it all the time, like what videos are so helpful. There are so many times where I thought, things look good and then I watched it and I thought, <laughs> oh, it didn't look good. So, you know, especially when you think you should have won and you didn't, you go watch that routine. And a lot of times, if you have even a semblance of self-awareness, you can tell that it wasn't as good as you remembered.
1: Okay. Yeah, bring it back to predicting player outcomes. One of the things in the list was, can the person uh, like uh divide good from bad? So, like if they see when they're learning watching someone else can they do they have a sense of like that was a good action or a bad action like was that a nice looking guidance or a poor looking guidance like having you can learn that sense and it's like lucky if you have it at the start but i think that is a good predictor because a lot of your training's gonna be by yourself and you're gonna have to be self-correcting and if you are good at determining if that was good or bad that will help a lot. That's the same thing like watching yourself. Like it only if you watch yourself and you make all the bad, of des- uh, come to the wrong conclusion, then it doesn't matter. No, that's that a, you watch yourself. That's a
0: great point. And I might have told this story before, but when I first started freestyling, I was playing with Daniel Yarnell and Chris Baker, and I thought Daniel Yarnell and Chris Baker were at about this game, about the same skill level. They were not. Dan Yarnell was a far better player than Chris mm-hmm. Baker. So when I started out. I did not, and I'm talking like the first weeks, I could not distinguish good freestyle from average freestyle. So that took time to develop. And so, you know, be aware of that. But part of how you learn what good freestyle is, is hearing what other people say good freestyle is. And it kind of goes back to our conversation about commentating before and how Dan and I were trying to communicate to the audience why we thought some combinations were better than others and hopefully that's the kind of thing that can help people learn and look this gets so ugly sounding because there's a subjective element to the sport and it sounds weird to be like oh people don't realize what's good and daniel and i we're gonna tell you what's <laughs> good but it's more like when you're not very skilled it, look there's probably an element to that for sure i'm not gonna pretend they're isn't things that we might be wrong about or people might disagree with us about. But I do think most freestylers, as they get better, they're able to see certain things as better than other things. And I think it's kind of universal. Like If you were learning alone, you would eventually come to the same conclusions about things like consecutivity. And so when you're a new player, you can't do that. But if people are showing you and telling you and communicating that here is what good freestyle looks like, you can start to internalize that So that you're better able to understand when you're meeting those expectations and when you're not so maybe that's another way to get around the problem of not really knowing if you're doing something right is to watch what you know is right what people are telling you is right and try to internalize that and then apply it to your own game Mm, yeah and going back to what you said early like mentors help because you're reminding me that one thing that came up a lot when Tina and I were learning in New York is the concept of valid in New York. And I use, I, st- <laughs> I still say valid and invalid all the time. And I know at least once I got yelled at for doing it, but in New York we almost had this nice social code because it's really hard when someone does something ugly or not very good to stop the jam and say, Hey, don't do that. That's pretty ugly. <laughs> and it's kind of like having food stuck in your teeth or something like everyone wants to know, if what they're doing is being perceived by others as really dumb, but it's really hard for people to tell other people when they're doing something dumb. But in New York, we have this shorthand that really worked is you do something dumb and someone goes, ah, that's invalid. And it's like, (laughs) okay, like that's not valid. I'm not going to do that anymore. And there is something about phrasing it in that way. And a lot of times it was like Dougie or Roger and their kind of lighthearted way that made it not hurt. And it was so helpful just to have that real time feedback of, Invalid. And Dougie will even just be like, don't do that. Don't do that. So, (laughs) and I, I think it's great. And I think if you can find people you trust and usually it's, you know, your friends, like people you come to love from freestyle, if they're telling you, if you can get to the place where you can tell each other, Hey, that's not cool. I mean, how often are me and you talking about it? How often do I do something or I send something and I look at you and I'm like, what do you think? (laughs) I mean, the best all the time, the best example is yeah. the guidance for the last five years. Every time I guide us, I look at you and you give me a numerical score between zero and 10. Like, I don't know how many people truly really understand that, but every single time I guide us in front of you, you give me a numerical score. How's that for feedback? And it worked. And it. Oh, man. Did you did I <laughs> did you look at the 11 minute video? I think I, I did it. look at what, I did. What did my guidance? What did you give
1: it? I this was too much to type, but it was at the wrong angle that made it look better than it probably actually was. But I would agree that it was an eight, I'm but te- it probably wasn't an eight if no, I was no, standing. No, I'm
0: telling there. you in real life, like I almost broke my ankle because I'd never floated that long in the air <laughs> and my body wasn't used to landing. And even Will was like, that was it. Like you, maybe you finally found it. I'm sure it'll go away. <laughs> but for reference point, usually uh, you were giving me fours and fives for the most of the first few years. And then I just started getting some sixes but maybe I'm about to take the next level. But anyways, give, give each other feedback. It's really helpful to becoming a better freestyler and self-awareness is key. I think everyone should cultivate it. And I think you have to cultivate not only an awareness of what you're bad at, but also what you're good at. And I think sometimes culturally, not just in the freestyle community, but in the world, we're so obsessed with this idea of humility that it can sometimes be really constricting. And I know this is a big laugh coming from me, but I think you have to be able to recognize and talk about what you're good at because that's your frame of reference for what you're bad at. And if you can be comfortable expressing to yourself and others, here's what I'm good at and here's what I'm bad at, you can prioritize how you develop your game to become a better player. But if you're really afraid of how you sound, whether falsely modest or arrogant, it's going to stop you from just being truthful and honest to figure out what you need to do to become a better player
1: mm. yeah i guess yeah that communication is hard <laughs> like it's awkward yeah and, and look it's yeah, probably wish- more
0: important to be able to acknowledge what you're bad at but like i don't know people are probably understand i think that's like a strength. i love talking about what i'm bad at because it's really nice because i get to sound like a nice guy it's like I get to sound all <laughs> hu- humble and I'm like, oh, I'm really bad at guidance. That's easy. It's a lot harder to say, oh, I'm really good at rolls because people just think you're a jerk for saying that. But I know for a lot of people it's hard and it's especially hard if it's really fundamental. So it, it was hard for me to realize that my throws were bad even in year five. Like, that took a lot of you know, soul searching to just accept that this is something I need to get better at. But it was instrumental to reaching the next level of freestyle. So take the painful pill at the beginning because it's going to pay off down the road is there
1: a way to make it less painful but get all the benefit like you start i mean first you like probably talk to your friend someone you know and you like start with a certain phrase to make it like prepares and like sets the expectation of the conversation
0: it's almost like practice you know it's like if you do it more you'll get better at it and that's definitely true i think i'm going to compare to an apology i think when you're young it's i don't know this is I've i never really had, I don't know maybe people disagree I feel like I've always found apologies to be like a cheat code and they're amazing and I'm surprised other people have trouble with them but I do think there's this thing that people can go through where once you learn how to apologize you realize how amazing it is because you lose nothing from it right it's like I get to apologize <laughs> and I feel like people are afraid of apologizing because they feel like they lose something but like oh you only gain from apologizing for something right It's such an advantage. Like the other person is so happy. They think more highly of you. You feel better because you're out of this complex. like apologizing is a cheat code. Talking about how you're bad at something is also a cheat code because no (laughs) one is going to look down on you for talking about something you're bad at. It's only some weird, ancient evolutionary aspect of our brain that's afraid of admitting failure. I don't know why we do that, but like once you experience and get all the positive feedback from acknowledging things you're bad at, it becomes really easy to do because it's like free social points. Like I love, I love talking about how bad I am at guided scene. It's just, it's, it's great. It's easy. It's like virtue signaling. Like I think, (laughs) I think eventually on the Hegelian dialectic of our, our, our society, we're going to have to revolt against this and be like, Hey, let's not make it too easy to apologize and talk about how bad you Mm -hmm. are and be all humble Because there's an element of that that can become the same kind of theater and BS as propping yourself up as having an amazing life. Like it cuts both ways, right? You can pretend to be on your fancy yacht living your best life. And that's a bunch of nonsense that we shouldn't reward you for. But also you can probably overemphasize your own victimhood and make that into theater as well. So that's a bigger social commentary. But for our purposes... Talk about what you're bad at. Get comfortable with what you're bad at. People will love hearing you talk about what you're bad at. It's like a very human thing to express and people are really empathetic with that. And once you get comfortable with it, you'll be able to do it with yourself internally and you'll be able to use that as your guidepost to become a better player. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Does that make sense at all? I haven't read anyone talking about that subject, so I'm worried that I'm way out of line, but I think... No, that
1: makes sense. I was trying to think if there is already like a named personality for that person that is like super self-deprecating. Like we have like Chad for like the super alpha bro. Yeah. <laughs> is there a name for like the self-deprecating person?
0: Well, I'm glad you use that word self-deprecating, right? Like there's a reason people self-deprecate deprecate because it's, you get a lot of positive social feedback for doing it. Now <laughs> socially I have concerns about that and what that means for society that, that just like we already understand that being a Chad is a problem how can we start to begin to understand about how being overly self-deprecating can be a problem and can become inauthentic, but in our limited world purpose, I think it's valuable that right now there is a lot of social feedback for being willing to talk about what you're bad at. And that should make, once you experience that, it'll be easier for you to talk about what you're bad at and you can use that productively.
1: Right. Mm hmm. So what you're saying right now is it's okay to be self-deprecating.
0: Or at least in, in- Increase that trend. In freestyle, it's it's not only acceptable, it's healthy, right? In the real world, it's more complicated whether it's healthy. Um, but in the freestyle world, because, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter or reflect on your self-worth how good you are at doing a neuron or a bad <laughs> attitude, right? And so it shouldn't be that hard for people to acknowledge hey, this is a thing I'm not that good at. And once you can acknowledge that, you can get better. I mean, knowing is half the battle in freestyle, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and using that to become a better player. Okay.
1: You think we're going to do an episode in one year and be like, man, all these players, all they talk about is their negative traits.
0: <laughs> like, can't get them to... Maybe. I feel like we, we joked about having a segment of the podcast that was confessionals, where we came on <laughs> yeah. and like talked about certain things that we didn't think people knew about. But, which maybe we should bring that up at some point, but maybe we should have people send us their confessionals and maybe they can give us like an audio recording of their confessional and we can upload, it, we can add it to the podcast or, or read them or something. But it's very rewarding to kind of stare the bear in the face and acknowledge what you can't do very well.
1: Yep, yeah. It's a good habit to build.
0: Yeah. Okay. Anything else?
1: Uh, We've been talking for quite a while. I don't have anything
0: else. Awesome. All right. Well, that was definitely fun. If you have comments, feedback, questions, send us an email at clock at gmail.com. And we will get to all of the listener questions we've been getting. We really appreciate all the nice emails that people have been sending our way. You can always message us personally. And we're really loving doing this podcast. And we hope that, You all are loving listening to it. So with that, we'll talk to you next time.